Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. So you are a young Hispanic male with visible tattoos, and you're the district attorney. How does that affect sort of your view of yourself and how you do your work? You know, I, what, what I really think is that uh, there need to be more young Hispanic or young white tattooed or young anything uh, as the face of our government. You know, if you look into all these public offices, I mean, none of the individuals look like the people they represent. Uh, none of the the people in office have those conversations. They probably feel like like Mr. Sessions, you know, bad people's uh, uh, smoke pot, you know, because they don't know anybody who is opposite of that. So I think that's where, you know, that's where the real power and the change really lies. Get individuals who either relate to you as a voter or look like you as a voter in office, because that's where real change comes from. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. Welcome to the second season of our show. Before we go any further, please consider subscribing to make sure that you don't miss a single episode this season. If you're new to Majority 54, I'm the president of Let America Vote. It's an organization that's dedicated to making sure that every American gets to vote by creating political consequences for undemocratic politicians who are trying to take away the basic right to vote. Majority 54 is named for the 54% of Americans who did not vote for President Trump. And I created it to help that 54% talk to their family members, their friends and acquaintances who did vote for Donald Trump. This show is about expanding our majority by arming you with the tools to have these conversations. This week, we're talking about a cause that has unanimous support across the political spectrum. Well, not unanimous or even near unanimous support for a single policy, but wide agreement that something needs to change in a major way. And that cause is criminal justice reform. From progressives to the Koch brothers, there's a strong consensus that the current situation is not working. Heck, it's almost become an inherently generational issue. If you're under 30, you know someone who grew up without a parent due to the flawed criminal justice situation in our country. It's a sign of the times when Sesame Street feels that they have to address this for kids. My dad's in jail. In jail? Why? I don't like to talk about it. Most people don't understand. Actually, I do understand what you're going through. When I was about your age, my dad was incarcerated too. He was? Wait, um, what's carcerated? And why was your dad in it? Incarcerated is when someone breaks the law, a grown-up rule, and then they have to go to jail or prison. The only people out there who don't seem to understand this emerging consensus seem to be the guy in the White House and his attorney general, who are desperate to defend and perpetuate failed criminal justice policies from the last 30 years that have undermined families and communities and overwhelmingly affected people of color in this country. 
This call for change is evident all the way down to the local level, even in some of the most conservative places in the country. And living proof of this is our guest, Mark Gonzalez. Mr. Gonzalez is the district attorney for Nueces County in Texas. He represents over 300,000 people in and around the Corpus Christi area. Mark Gonzalez is a self-described Mexican biker lawyer covered in tattoos, and his election in a deep red district is a story that can be emulated across the country. Here's my conversation with Mark. One of the things I read you've talked about before is this makeshift tattoo that you and your buddies uh, made when you were in, in high school? Yeah, man. So we were 15. Uh, I lived with my dad and he had a girlfriend and this girlfriend has been off and on. He actually married her twice. Uh, and so my stepbrother, he was like my best friend. And then he became my stepbrother and my dad divorced his wife. And then he became my best friend again. And then he, they got married again. And so he became my stepbrother and then they got divorced again. And so now he's still my best friend, but we're real tight. <laughs> and so we were all going to Gardner. We didn't know anybody who, it's not like nowadays, you can't buy a tattoo gun on Amazon. You know, you used to have to, either people were making them with with uh, little uh, motors uh, from little cars and maybe like some uh, guitar string. I mean, that's back back then. But uh, so before then, um, we uh, we got some hangers and we said we could brand ourselves. So there was like 12 of us, man. We all went to to Garner, and I'm 15, and, you know, what do you do? Hey, Dad, go get us some beer. So Garner's a dry county, so we had to drive to the next county to actually get some beer. And uh, we all got, you know, plastered, uh, and we, my parent, my dad and his girlfriend, my ex-stepmom, my stepmom, or, you know, they all went to bed, and me and my buddies just uh, got, the, got a clothes hanger, and we shaped it into the shape that we wanted, and uh, each one of us took a, a turn and burning somebody's initials on them. I didn't burn anybody. I will admit to that. But uh, the my friends that got me, I, honestly, man, he did a great job. There was a, I say, you know, out of the 12 of us or 11 of us that did it, probably a good six came out really looking nasty. I mean, it didn't even look like nothing what it was supposed <laughs> if you If you was looking supposed to be an R, looked like a P. I mean, it was just bad. We woke up the next day, and, man, my dad tore us apart. But, I mean, what could he do? You know, that was the start of the what can you do, you know? I mean, learn from your mistakes, move on, or, you know, embrace it. So uh, mine came out good. Mine's on my stomach. It's an M, and it's still there, man. You could still see it. Uh, my tattoos are around it, but it's still there. So it's just one of the things that people say, man, you guys are crazy, you know? I cannot believe you guys do that to yourselves. What will you do to other people? So uh, that's just one of the things we did when we were young. And then tattoos started after that. Well, it kind of goes in the category of things that make you a rather unique person to be in the role of, of prosecutor or district attorney. Uh, and that combined with what I assume was your, your first experience with the criminal justice system. Tell us a little bit about what happened when you were 19 and how that shaped the rest of your life. So before, you know, when I was going to college, I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. You know, um, I, I had for some reason I knew I wanted to be something successful. Right. I mean, everyone says I want to be a somebody. At least that's what I thought. I always had drive, but I didn't have any clue or any idea for whatever reason. I wanted to be a dentist. It got in my head. Right. And then I I uh, uh, realized as soon as I kind of got, you know, more hands-on type uh, of experience that there's no way I want to put my, my hands in people's mouths every day. Like, it was just something that I realized, okay, I, I don't want to do that anymore. But I still had no idea, and they said, that's all right. You know, you have two years, get your basics out the way. 
once you get your basics out the way, you can decide what you really want to do, you know? So just take your basics. So that's what I kind of did. So my freshman year, uh, I want to say, was it my freshman or sophomore? No, it was my freshman year of college, second semester. Um, my buddy was playing football in Kingsville. And that's just maybe 30 minutes down the road uh, from Corpus Christi. And there was a, a party that they were having, all the football players. So I said, sure. He's like, he's, what are you doing? I'm like, man, I'll go over there. So I head down over there to Kingsville. And, man, I make a, a mistake. I, I get completely plastered. Uh, but the mistake was actually getting behind the wheel of my car and driving uh, back home to where I was staying. Or not, not I wasn't coming back to court, but I was staying at my cousin's apartment that day. But on the way over there, I saw this girl that I was going to go talk to. And when I got to the store... I get off to talk to this girl, and she's like, hey, there's some cops behind you. And sure enough, there was a cop car behind me, and the lights were going on. And I'm like, oh, man, here it goes. I'm going to jail. As soon as the officer approached me, I just gave him my hands, and I knew what was going to happen. Uh, he said, sir, uh, you know, I'm um, officer so-and-so with Kingsville PD. Have you been drinking? I said, yeah, I've been drinking. I pretty much put my hands together like, you know, he was going to cuff me. I said, yes, sir, and, and he took me in. So I get out of jail that night. Uh, well, actually, early that morning, I call my dad and my mom and even my girlfriend, who I was with at that time, and they all showed up to the jail in Kingsville. My mom was probably crying. None of us had ever really been arrested. I told my mom, I said, what am I going to do? You know, and, and her first impression is not, well, let's hire a lawyer. Let's see what your rights are. Let's fight this as much as you can. Her first response was, I'll go with you and it'll be okay. Mijo, if you plead guilty, they will be nice to you. And I was like, yeah, sure, that makes sense. Uh, and that's not the way it works. Uh, so I went to court. Uh, you know, I didn't get I didn't get railroaded in any way. I got the standard deal that anybody that goes in there either alone or with their mom got. But what was life-changing for me is the guy standing next to me, he was a, a Navy pilot, he was a white guy, uh, and he had a, a, a hometown uh defense attorney and you know he got charged with exactly what i did and his case got dismissed and at that point in time i already had taken my deal you know i'm I'm like all right you know they deal with the easy ones first and i'm like i'm looking over and i'm like man what the heck is going on here i'm like how is this able to happen like i i didn't know you could even first off fight for uh, uh i didn't know you could fight your case secondly i didn't know that i had a right to a lawyer i didn't really know any of that uh, and I said, you know, this is not the way it should be. And I was like, I'm going to try to be a lawyer. I said, I'm going to try to be a lawyer and hopefully I can help my friends out. So that way they don't have to take their moms. And uh, it just luckily worked out. Uh, I honestly didn't know if I could be a lawyer. I didn't know how what it took that you had to have a four year degree, a bachelor's and anything that you could uh, go to law school. It was three years. You had to take an LSAT. I had no idea. I didn't know any of that. And there was no one I could even really ask because I didn't know any lawyers or, or judges or none of my family members uh, worked in that legal field. And if they did, it was because they'd been arrested or, you know what I mean? It wasn't something that they knew. And so uh, I looked into it. And it's not like today. My brother's trying to get into law school now. And my nephew just graduated uh, last week. And he's going to the same law school that I went to. And it's amazing how 10 or well, 12 years now have, have changed the course of me, but not only me, my family, you know, my, my uh, being the first college graduate, now the first lawyer, I'm going to hopefully in a few years have two more lawyers in my family. And so it's amazing to me that um, that point just kind of shifted 
I don't know if it was fate, it was destiny, but I knew right then and there, like, you know, that's what I wanted to do or what at least was going to try to do. That's kind of remarkable, right? Like, had you not gotten the law degree, you wouldn't have had the option of going into law enforcement because of your background. And now you're the head (laughs) of law enforcement in your county because you were elected to the position. It's completely, I mean, sometimes I'm driving home and I think to myself, like, you are the DA. Like, that alone is the most craziest idea. The fact that I get to speak to you however we're speaking right now is crazy because, you know, I was a defense attorney for 10 years. Um, and, you know, I've always wanted to be successful, and I was very successful in my in my practice. I mean, if you did something bad, I was the guy you hired, and, and we were going to go in there and, and, and duke it out. You and, know, and, which, and chances are I was going to beat the, the 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 offer or you were going to get a not guilty. I mean, that's why people hired me and I, I did well. Let's you talk know? about that for a second, because you were saying that you decided you thought I want to become a lawyer so I can help my friends. And that's what you did, right? Like you became a defense lawyer in Agua Dulce. You yeah, know. well, so Agua Dulce is in Oasis County, right? But mm-hmm. it's. Our little town is closer to Alice, Texas, which is Jim Wells, which is the, the the adjoining county. So all my buddies and all my family members, when they go to drink or they go to buy their groceries, they go to Alice, which is Jim Wells. So I would practice in both counties. Uh, but my first clients for a very long time were family members, you know. And uh, those are the ones that are the most stressful of all your clients. Why? Because you don't want to mess up, you know, on 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 cousin Mike's case. Because guess what? Yeah, that's going to be the talk of every barbecue or every party you go to. Like, yeah, Mark messed that one up. You know, Johnny's in prison for 15 years because he didn't do his job right. So, you know, those to me are the most strenuous cases when it's family members or good friends, you know. Uh, but that was part of my caseload when I first started, man. I was taking anything that came in. You know, they were like, uh, well, how much do you charge? Well, how much do you have? Because 50 bucks is 50 bucks, 500 bucks is 500 bucks when the rent is due. I mean, I remember when there were days and, and weeks where I was praying that a client would come in. And sure enough, man, God always provided because it would be that Friday and, and, and I'd get a call and someone got in trouble and, you know, they would tied me over. And then before you knew it, I was trying, I was turning away business. You know, I was taking cases that I really wanted to take as opposed to cases that I have to take because of, of, of financial reasons. So um, I think the work spoke for itself, you know, and, and that's one of the things that I've always tried to to be or instill or, or, or have my motto is that let the work speak for itself. And I really want to do the best job I can, whether I'm a defense attorney, I'm going to you know, do the best I can and be the best defense attorney there is. And now as I sit here as a DA, you know, I, I have that same mentality. I want to do the best that I can as the DA. Uh, and it's just a, a, a different hat, but I'm still able to help my friends out, which is crazy. And even in a better way, because I can make sure that number one, they're getting fair. They're getting treated fairly. You know, where before, if you ask me when I go in there with my mom, when I'm 19, you know, man, I didn't have a chance in hell to get a fair shake from that DA or that county attorney. Why? They had no reason to even even look another way, you know. But at least now, everyone who comes into my county, whether, you know, they're misdemeanors and felonies, they're going to get that fair shake. They're going to get treated fairly, uh, whether they bring their mom or they bring a high-paying attorney. I mean, that's just one of the ways that, that I can personally help everybody and e- evil, uh, even the the playing field. Well, and I think it's important 
to think about what you just said, right? You're you're a prosecutor who's saying, I'm trying to even the playing field. I'm trying to help everybody. And you spent 10 years, you know, in your legal career as a, as a defense attorney, not prosecuting a single case. And to sort of continue with the theme of, you know, your tattoos over the course of your life, you've got to be the only prosecutor in the country with not guilty tattooed uh, on your body. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Trust me, you know, there are 252 elected district attorneys. And when we all go here in Texas, 252 here in Texas, and we all go to our, you know, our annual uh, convening where we, you know, get our, our updates or legislative updates or anything like that. Trust me, I stick out like a sore thumb and I'm OK with that. You know, uh, I, I think anyone in public service has, um, I want to say, their heart in the right place. You know, not even the most conservative guys, you know, I really don't think they're out here trying to to really railroad people, you know. I honestly feel that these DAs all across the country, you know, um, they just don't know. You know, they haven't been on the other side. They haven't met the people when you affect their lives, uh, whenever, you know, the collateral consequences. When you send dad to jail for a nonviolent offense, how is mom going to take care of these kids? How is... How are the kids going to be able to, you know, grow and 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 flourish in an environment where their father's no longer around for maybe something where there was a different answer to that problem? So, you know, I think a lot of people who may not think like me, I don't think they're bad. I just think maybe they don't know. You know, I, I learn stuff every day. Uh, I, even as the D.A., uh, I learn stuff every day, even as a person. You know, I, I take knowledge from everyone. You don't need a degree to be be intelligible. You don't need a, a, a degree to be smart. One of the smartest men I ever knew, he, the, the, the highest uh, grade of education, he went to the third grade, but he's sayings, he's said things, the way to be as a man, you know, the, those are the things that you don't need uh, a, a piece of paper to say you are that. So, uh, you know, I, it's not that I don't think their, their, their heart's not in the right place. I just think they haven't been through it. And once you've been through it, I think you have a little better uh, understanding. You know, you have a little bit more understanding. Sunbasket has been rated the number one meal kit by leading publications, and it's no wonder why. They offer 18 weekly recipes with options for paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, lean and clean, vegan, and more. But for me, what matters is that Sunbasket helps me eat healthier. Simple as that. Jason, did you know that by 4 p.m. on any given day, 70% of Americans have no idea what they're going to have for dinner that night? I love that you just do research that's not in the copy. My friend Jeff told me, and then I looked it up, and it's a fact on the internet. I, I believe it. I, I, it's 10 p.m., and I have no idea what I <laughs> ate for any of my meals today. Now you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick from 18 weekly recipes. Easily cooked dishes like seared albacore tuna steaks with green beans and soft cooked eggs, or my favorite, the Thai chicken lettuce wraps. Those were amazing. Everything is pre-measured and easy to prep. You can get a healthy and delicious meal on the table in about 30 minutes. And my favorite part of it is that with every meal, I learn new chef skills that make me feel like I am becoming a powerful chef with every kit. You are, no doubt. Go to sunbasket.com slash 54 today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash 54 for $35 off. 
sunbasket.com slash five four. Enjoy. You're from a county that hasn't voted for a Democratic presidential candidate in more than 20 years. And the county has almost only had older white guys in every position of power. You know, you have a lot of the biker community who are conservative Republicans. They're ex-military members. Um, You know, they are individuals who are very strong in their Second Amendment right, their right to vote, uh, to... um, uh, but they are also very conservative, uh, you know, their prior ex-military. And I think that was a voting pool that actually brought me over the edge because I only won by 1,200 votes. And in this county, that was that was pretty small. I mean, I went to sleep that night thinking I lost, you know, and I got woken up by my brother who had been p- celebrating for me. I was exhausted. And he said, dude, you won, you won, you won. And, you know, so I, I don't know if it was because of the biker community or because people were just. So fed up. Just, I mean, think about it. We have President Trump and, you know, who had ever, I never thought in my wildest dreams that we would be saying, you know, okay, we have a uh, Donald Trump elected. The guy from Apprentice is our president. But I think you had maybe some of those same people who were angry or upset or, or didn't feel like they were part of anything. Maybe that's where the same group of people who said, we're going to take a, a chance on the tattooed guy, the <laughs> guy that says not guilty on his chest. We're going to go ahead and give him an opportunity to see what do we have to lose. We're dealing with a, a, a system or an office that is so broken. Let's give this guy a chance. He kind of Maybe he'll do good. What What's the worst he can do? That's been one of the crazy things about this job that I've done or have. Everyone's like, oh, you've done such a great job. The reality is I'm just doing my job. I'm not doing anything better. I'm just doing what I was supposed to do. But but the office that I inherited was so bad and in so bad shape. There was nothing I could really do besides unless I'm, you know, getting all the money from and putting it in my bank account or getting all the drugs and selling them. I mean, there was no real way I could really, really do any worse than what was going on, you know. Uh, so as long as I did cases and the job that I was supposed to do, I mean, it was a win win. Um, so it's, it's been one of the things that I've seen. I think that people just wanted to change, uh, and it takes people either two things, you either love something and that's why you're going to do it, or you are so mad and angry. That's why you're going to do it. And I think people were just angry and mad. So you've got this close up firsthand experience with America's criminal justice system. And it comes almost exclusively from the perspective of the defendant, because that's been your work. Now, the way that it was done before you got there and the way that it's often done around the country, the current approach, how do you feel that that fails communities and harms families? Well, you have to think about it. I mean, mass incarceration is still going on. Whenever I go to the courtroom and I look into the audience and that these are all defendants or people who are shackled up in our bright orange Nueces County jumpers, they all look like me. They all look young, Hispanic men, young uh, even even Anglo men and even young uh, African-Americans. But what the common denominator is young poor. You know, that's what it really boils down to. It's not so much, uh, at least in my area, you know, we have good relations with, with police in the community. You know, they're not out here uh, harassing individuals of different color or anything. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure they have some of their issues, but it's not something that is like these other uh, areas in the country. But with that being said, you know, Nowadays, it's it seems to stem down to economic class, you know, not just race anymore. It's how much money do you have? Uh, and so, you know, we have to take a step back and look at it. I mean, people are going back to prison. You know, one out of three is going to reoffend. I mean, the statistics are crazy. We have to just change the way we think about criminal justice. You know, 
all these the war on drugs has is you know is is a lost cause you know and now we have with some in the federal level you know let's start to uh, go after marijuana again or you know with sessions and and just different ways of thinking. I mean, you have to look at things as a health. Uh, issue versus a criminal issue. A lot of the drug-related offenses, you know, why? We have to ask ourselves, why did the act happen? You know, was it because he was hooked on drugs and maybe that's why there was a theft and now there's been three thefts and so we enhanced them uh, to make it a state jail level and then after they come out and they're still hooked on drugs, they're still stealing, then what happens? Then we're sending them for to prison for even longer types of, of sentences. And all it does is really, I mean, you know how much that costs the taxpayer? Does it make sense for us to um, keep people in prison uh, for stuff that, you know, we could probably address it in a different way? So I think we just have to change our way of thinking and see what really works because sending people away for 10 years uh, for, for, you know, some nonviolent offense, it's not going to help that individual. That's not the problem. Uh, and there's tons of research out there that says, you know, sending people to prison doesn't work. The only thing we know that it's going to happen is they're not going to reoffend uh, while they're in prison. At least, you know, I'm sure there's that has another whole story about what goes on in prison uh, and how they're treated there or victimized even there or doing the victimization. But we have to just take a step back and look at what's what's best for our community. You know, is that keeping fathers away from their sons, mothers away from their daughters? Um, pe- keeping people in prison uh, as opposed to really trying to rehabilitate them. You know, are we going to spend, you know, $140,000 a year on somebody when we can spend it somewhere else uh, and give this person treatment that he probably really needs as opposed to uh, just putting him in prison and, and and punishing him? It seems like we ask really different questions when we know the person that's uh, dealing with, you know, the criminal justice system and it's somebody that we care about. So, for instance, with the opioid crisis, sure, it, it feels like people are asking different questions than they did. Uh, you know, for one thing, we call it the opioid crisis and they call crack the crack epidemic. I mean, so right. it's it, it, that's one example. But can you talk a little bit about that, how you see people asking different questions when they view somebody as somebody they know versus, you know, the other it is a little telling whenever, you know, they're calling it the op- opioid epidemic and and maybe we should have safe sites and make sure our, our people aren't, uh, um, you know, over overdosing. So we're number one going to check their drugs. So, so that way that they're, you know, safe. And not only that, we want to have these uh, pins available in case they do overdose. So that way we make, we make sure they don't die. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that probably wasn't the case when the crack e- epidemic was happening. Um, but you know, at least the conversation is, is one where, you know, if, if it takes opioids to get that conversation going, hopefully it can transcend and, and transfer over to all the other, uh, addiction, um, drug cases that come about through the criminal justice system. I think that the same line of thinking should be for the opioids that should go out to methamphetamine, crack, cocaine, um, marijuana, anything where it's a almost a health healthcare issue. You know, you don't want your your people out there dying. And if you think about it, what person really wants to be addicted to a drug where they cannot control themselves, where they get physically sick if they don't get uh, uh, the drug that they are addicted to? You know, I, I think that it's it's time that we we try to change just the way of thinking, just how if if you have no 
I guess, contact with that type of, of individual, you don't really know how it really affects them. Like I said, nobody really wants to be addicted to heroin where they're stealing and doing everything that they can in their power to hurt themselves. I mean, they're stealing from their from their mothers. Uh, they, they're stealing from their loved ones. I mean, they're doing whatever they have to do. So I think it's, it's really hard for us to actually think that way. And I, and I think that once the conversation starts, I think it's, 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 it's at least a step in the right direction. And I'm glad that we're having these conversations now. And I'm glad that, you know, there are safe sites, uh, or, or there will be soon, hopefully where individuals who are addicted to, to opioids can go and at least, you know, make sure that, uh, they're not going to OD. And and you've got a few initiatives uh, that you're pushing, which include a site and release program for cases involving small amounts of marijuana and a domestic violence initiative that includes assisting cosmetologists to spot signs of abuse in their clients. Can you talk a little bit about these and, and why you focus on doing it this way? So, you know, part of as an attorney uh, in private practice, you have to be a good attorney, right? I mean, if you're not good, no one's going to hire you. But you also, you also have to be a smart businessman. You can't be one and the other and not be successful. You're a great lawyer, but you don't know how to get your name out there. Well, guess what? No one's going to hire you. If you're the best marketer and everybody knows who you are, but your results are less than, you know, if, you, if you're not good in the courtroom, then no one's going to hire you. So you have to do both. And I kind of took that approach when I got into office and I said, all right, what is going to make this office successful, but how can we think about it in a way where we want to be efficient? Efficient in a way where when we can cut costs here, keep people out of jail who don't need to belong there, save the county money because people aren't either getting victimized in jail or we're not having to house them and medically care for them. How can we do that? So, you know, marijuana was one of the first things. Luckily, here in Texas, the district attorney has broad discretion as to what I can do, you know, as long as it's within the uh, uh, the broad ranges of punishment that we have available, we can pretty much do anything we really want. Um, you know, so I took it immediately to try to decriminalize and not decriminalize, uh, use my discretion when it came to marijuana. And so what we did was whether it was your first one or your hundredth one, uh, you know, we would dismiss your marijuana case. Uh, and you say, well, why Why do you want to dismiss these cases? Well, number one, a lot of individuals who, you know, smoke marijuana aren't nonviolent individuals, you know. Uh, but number two, if you have a conviction for marijuana, number you can lose your housing. So let's say you're, you know, you're already in a, in a tight spot. You're living in housing. Uh, if you have a marijuana conviction, you lose your housing. If you're a college student and you're trying to actually better yourself, and you get a marijuana conviction, well, guess what? You lose your financial aid. So I didn't want our office or my office to be part of that problem. I didn't want anyone who we prosecuted for us to ruin their lives. Imagine that for one joint or something else because the guy took his mom and he just pled guilty and he wanted to get out of there. He can't get financial aid three or four years later when he gets his act together and he wants to go to college. Well, why can't I get financial aid? Well, you have a marijuana conviction. So that was a way for us to try to help the community out, but also be smart in the sense of generating revenue. I know in our first year, we generated over $500,000 uh, off of our pre-trial diversion programs. Uh, and so that's one of the ways that I try to transition the office. What's going to make sense? How can we save the taxpayers money and how can we make us some money? A lot of people say, well, that's kind of paying for justice. You know, you're, you're paying to get this dismissal, you know, and that's not the case because we always have the option available. If you um, 
if you cannot afford or the fine is $250. It's a class. Uh, it could be online on drugs. Uh, but if you can't afford the $250, then you always have the option to take community service. Uh, honestly, if you ask me, if you can afford some of the high grade uh, marijuana that's going around, uh, you can afford my $250 fine. <laughs> so, uh, you know, most people don't have an issue with paying the $250. They're really uh, um, glad and support the fact that, you know, we're not trying to ruin their lives. Now, the sign release program also was one that was probably needed because our jails are overcrowded. All right. It's $81 a day for everybody who's in jail. Uh, and when you're at max capacity, you know, there are certain people that we have to keep in jail. And so what we want to do, and we're about to hopefully implement this uh, and the commissioner's court and our, and our county judge has been helpful in this. There are seven cases or excuse me, seven violations uh, that the legislator have passed where we can cite and release. They're a theft A and B, they're marijuana A and B, uh, driving with license invalid. Um, I want to say one, two, one, two, three, uh, criminal trespass. And, um, I want to say criminal mischief. Okay. So those are the seven. And so an officer, if he chooses to, he can give you a citation and then he can come report. So what does that mean? That officer isn't off the road for two or three hours on a minor infraction. All right. Now, officers will always have the discretion to go ahead and arrest somebody. The guy's being a jerk. If he's being combative, guess what, buddy? You can go to jail. Officer, we never take that away from our officers. But if it's some kid, he gets caught with a joint. His is he's on his way to class. He was speeding. Maybe he got caught with a joint. You know, uh, you you have the option to give him a um, a citation, and he can go take care of it later with us. So, what does that do? Number one, it saves the county that eighty one dollars a day, and off of uh, our thirty days, our month period of all the arrests that are in those seven. Uh, we'll be saving the county at least once it's in place, at least $24,000 a month just on the site and release program alone. And uh, number two, what's going to help out is the officers will be able to respond to serious cases. You know what I mean? They're not waiting in the line trying to take this kid in for a joint or some girl who went to uh, the local marketplace and, and took some makeup. You know, here, here's her citation. She's coming in. So she's not in jail. That kid's not in jail. They're not going to get beat up by maybe the guys who are really violent in jail. So we're not going to get sued uh, by those individuals. And then if they are pregnant and they come in or they have a, a, a medical condition, we don't have to treat that person because we're in charge or the county is. And when I say we, I'm talking about Nueces County. Someone goes to our jail and they get beat up. Well, guess who's getting sued? The, the county. If someone has uh, medical issues and something happens or they need that care, Who's in charge of it? Who takes the 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 the, the who takes the uh, has to pay for it? The county. So that's another way that we're trying to be smart on on crime because we're not sending these people to jail. Uh, we're not using officer resources, but yet we're being um, you know efficient where we're saving the 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 jail and the taxpayers money because they're not in jail. So those are just things that it makes sense. It's common sense if you ask me. If I'm running a business. How can I do it in a better way where I'm making and saving money? One thing I wanted, I didn't want to miss is, you know, I've interviewed several people on here now. You're the first person I've ever interviewed who's part of a biker gang, and you're also the district attorney. So that's, I would imagine, presents an interesting perspective for you and your work. You know, it's crazy because I'm the elected district attorney, and if I get stopped by anybody in law enforcement, I'm going to come up as a gang member. Um, I, I was driving my wife uh, to Laredo, and I was speeding. 
and uh, I got stopped. And uh, officer pull uh, gets my my license, and he and then he says, "Can you step out of the car?" It had been years since an officer had asked me to step out of the car, and I was like, "Okay, well, what's going on?" So he brings me to the rear of the vehicle, uh, and this was before I was district attorney. I was just running for I think the the election was probably like two weeks later, and uh, and so he pulls me to the back, and he's like, "Can you tell me why you're coming?" Up? First, he goes, "You have any weapons or drugs?" I said, "No, sir. What would make you think I have any weapons or drugs?" Uh, and he says. Well, why are you coming up as a as a gang member? I said, well, uh, I said, I can explain that. I said, I, I understand you think I'm a gang member, but what I am in is a bike club. I said, I know you guys may feel that's a gang, but it's not. We are not a 1% club. And, and in the biker community, in the biker world, you have family clubs and you have your 1% outlaws that, that, that say this is what we are. And we've never said we are that. We're a, a family club and our, our stuff is, uh, you know, work family and then the club you know what i mean it's never club before anything and and you know it, these individuals most of them you know none of them have uh felony convictions a lot of them have uh work work with uh that they have jobs you know you know if, if they do have any kind of uh criminal records maybe a dwi here or maybe a bar fight never with a man on a woman you know mostly uh you know two guys who are at a bar getting into it but, you know, uh, and so I, I, I'm explaining that to him. I said, you know, we we do um, bike runs, Toys for Tots. I mean, you tell me what kind of gang uh, donates to Toys for Tots and, and does uh, cancer uh, benefits for people in need. I said, and uh, and I said, and I told the officer, I said, and to tell you the truth, I might be the DA of Nueces County in about two weeks. <laughs> and he said, well, wouldn't it be uh, a shame if I had to arrest the district, the new district attorney uh, for reckless driving? And I looked at him and I thought to myself and I said, you know what? That's my bad. I said, if I wasn't speeding, you wouldn't have had any contact with me. And uh, you're right. So he gave me a warning and I went down on my way. A lot of the biker community, as I said, they're ex-military members. Um, you know, they want that brotherhood. They want that structure. And uh, and and I mean, riding a bike is 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 almost like a to me at least is a is a feeling of freedom. I can't explain it. You know, it's the first time I always knew that I wanted to do it and uh there are a lot of guys who who feel that way, man. Once you do it, you'll know that it's just uh freedom and and it just something you can't explain. Well, I'm glad I asked you so you could clear it up for me. Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. For instance, Majority 54 just hired its first producer. His name is Brock Wilbur, and he's the greatest thing that ever happened to the show. I don't know if you guys can spot the difference, but it's pretty amazing now. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one Day. Just to give you an idea of what a difference it makes to have a good person like our good producer, Brock Wilbur, it is currently like 10, 20 p.m. at night, and we're in a very hot room upstairs in our house. It doesn't get air conditioning, but excellent audio quality. Yeah, trying not to wake up our son who's sleeping in the next room, and Brock brought over all this equipment so we could do this from the house. We provided him with a glass of ice water. That is a fact. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash 5-4. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 5-4. ZipRecruiter.com slash 5-4. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
this last part is sort of like, it's a little bit like a rapid fire section. Sure. And, and here's how it works. Uh, part of the show is we go through um, the stuff that the opposition says on the issue. So the issue in this case is, is criminal justice reform. So okay. I'm going to go through, okay. I'll mention some things they say, and then you and I will, like, you'll talk about how you would respond to that, and then I'll talk about how I would, and then we'll go to the next one. So uh, we'll start with the first one. What, what do we say to people who simply think that the problem is that our criminal justice system is not harsh enough to deter criminal behavior. Just when you thought our federal prisons couldn't get any more crowded, they already are overcrowded. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has told prosecutors to pursue the most serious charges possible against criminal suspects. The move will not only send more criminals to jail, but it will do so for longer terms by triggering mandatory minimum sentences. It's an explicit reversal of Eric Holder's sentencing policy that focused on not incarcerating people who committed low-level nonviolent crimes. Session says it's a key part of Donald Trump's promise to keep America safe, but is overbooking our prison system like a United flight really helping anyone? I would say you're completely wrong. And the reason is statistics would show that the people who get locked away for a very long time and they come out, they reoffend. So that shows you that prison doesn't work. I mean, if that isn't evidence enough, I don't know what is. Yeah. And I, I also think that one of the things that happens is people tend to live in this sort of suspended disbelief that they don't know anybody who's been to prison or to jail. When, you know, when you look at the statistics, Chances are, no matter where you live in the country, if you if you go outside your house on a given day, you are going to interact with someone who has been to prison. And therefore, we you know, while we refer to it as the Department of Corrections, when we are rarely correcting anything and instead just punishing what we end up with is people who have been punished but haven't gained any skills or any ability to live in our community. And now they're among us. And we probably ought to just be thinking a lot more about, you know, how we want those folks to come out of jail. You know, and one of the main ways that we can change the whole system, the whole entire system, all we would need to do is let individuals who actually are felons after a certain amount of time, if they don't reoffend, give them back and restore their rights, make them not felons. You don't know how many felons that I've met and know would say, you know what, if I could, I would do anything not to be labeled as a felon. And if they they obeyed every single law for more than 10 years, put it 15 years, whatever you want to put it on. I promise you so many people would not reoffend because they have something to look forward to. But when you don't have that, what can you do? You have to work with what you have. And unfortunately, sometimes the only way that they can uh, try to earn any income is resorting to some of the old things that they were doing. So I think one of the main ways to change the whole uh, system would be to restore uh, the rights back. Including the right to vote, which we've talked about well, on this show in the past. Luckily, in, our, in, in Texas, uh, felons have the right to vote restored. Uh, as soon as you are off of probation or you're off of uh, parole, you can vote. Uh, and that's one of the things that just recently happened within the last couple of years. I had tons of voters I was registering who said, hey, I'm a felon. Well, guess what, buddy? In Texas, you can vote now. So at least I could say Texas is leading the charge there. That's at least something. That's something. That's good. That's good. Okay, uh, next one. There's this issue of uh, privatization of prisons in the country. And the people who are in favor of it argue that privatizing prisons is better for both the safety of Americans and for prison populations. On Thursday, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said he supports the federal government's use of private prisons. 
In a new memo that replaces the one issued in August by former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, Sessions said that Yates's order impaired the Bureau's ability to meet the future needs of the federal correction system. Back in November, following Donald Trump's win in the presidential election, stock in some private prison companies soared. The Department of Justice began working with private facilities as the prison population rose exponentially from 1980 to 2013. However, according to a recent report, private facilities do not maintain the same levels of security and safety that government-run prisons provide i'm curious what your response to that is you know i i don't think so i think if you have a private um sector who is hopefully uh making money off of people being incarcerated well guess what they're going to like that money and what are they going to do probably lobby for stricter stricter rules stricter punishments uh more crimes more uh, uh um crimes that you can be confined for i just don't know i i don't i can see how Maybe perhaps, uh, you know, you're going to have better quality of, of, of housing. I don't know, but I would rather be in a situation where um, the, the government controls and they don't have an interest in, in arresting people. You know, they're going to lose money the more people that are arrested. I just think privatization of, of prisons and even jails is, is just, uh, you know, a, a road that I would not want to go down. You know, for me, it, it goes back to a story from my time. I used to be in the in the Missouri State Legislature, and I remember that at one point somebody had proposed a bill that was going to exempt. Uh, I don't remember if it was a bill or just a proposal, but they what they wanted to do was exempt private prisons from the requirement that they report and escape from their prison within like the first 24 hours. And I remember thinking how insane that was. And and clearly the idea was like, hey, you know, these, this is a private company that's paying for this. They don't want to have to do what a regular, uh, you know, state prison would have to do. Meanwhile, there's someone who's just escaped from prison, like in the community running around. To me, that was like a perfect example of why, you know, having private for-profit lobbying on behalf of having more prisons or different prison rules would be really dangerous for people inside and outside of a prison. Oh, completely. I mean, imagine that. That That's just, yeah, there's, there's no way that that would be good for individuals who have to go to prison or to jail. No way. Hey, thanks for doing this, Mark. I really appreciate it, man. Sure, man. A huge team candor thank you to Mark for taking the time to speak with us today. Folks in Nueces County should feel lucky to have him, and we'll be keeping in touch as he furthers his mission. Thank you for listening to Majority 54. Make sure that you're subscribed on all the subscribing platforms, and please leave a comment about the show. Uh, we read every single comment. That's what we do before we go to bed every night. And many of your notes have helped us make the show much, much better. That and hiring Brock Wilbur, as we alluded to earlier. If you want to leave us five stars in the iTunes store and or tell absolutely everybody that you know about how much you enjoyed what we do, uh, that would be okay. I'm on the tweeting website as at Jason Kander. Uh, You can catch the behind the scenes video of, of my interviews and of other Let America Vote projects on my channel on YouTube. And then if there's something you want us to know, but you don't want to tell the entire world, you can email hello majority54 at gmail.com. If you have a really super great idea about the show, uh, please text Jason on his cell phone. The number is, uh, no, That's funny. <laughs> no, we've, uh, we've liked too many things today. So we'll just leave it for now. We'll do the cell phone thing next week. Uh, just subscribe to the show and let your friends know that it's definitely worth their time. I'm Jason Kander, along with my wife, Diana, and the team at Majority 54. Thanks for listening. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.
Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.